This is an ABC podcast. There are a lot of fields that claim to fuse art and science. But while it might not be the first one that springs to mind, the field this week's speaker specialises in is arguably most worthy of the fusion. I'm Tegan Taylor and this is Occam's Razor, a soapbox for science. This week, we're hearing from Jared Archibald, who's spent a large chunk of his career as a taxidermist. It's science for sure, a knowledge of anatomy and animal behaviour are essential, but there's an artistry to it too. Here's Jared. Have you ever walked into a museum or natural history gallery and wondered just how the animals there are preserved for display? Did you imagine there must be a lot of blood, gore and guts involved? Well, wonder no longer, as I'm here to share with you the basics of taxidermy and how it is a delicate blend of both science and art. So what actually is taxidermy? If you look at the etymology of the word, it comes from the Greek taxis, meaning arrangement, and derm, skin, an arrangement of the skin. It is the technique of processing a dead animal in a way that makes it look alive again, but frozen in time. The real test of a piece of taxidermy is when someone says, hmm, that's a nice stuffed eagle, or that eagle is so lifelike, it looks like it could just fly away. When we hear that latter response, we know that we've got it right. It is basically a form of scientific illustration, but we are doing it with the actual animal, not with paints, brushes, or ink. Traditional taxidermy involves the skinning of an animal, the production of a fake inert body, the form, and the sewing of the skin over this new body and posing it to look lifelike. Sounds easy? It is, sort of, but not really. The mechanics of taxidermy anyone can do with a little patience and training. You can even learn it out of a book, but hands-on training with an experienced technician is always the best method. I've had numerous Year 10 work experience students turn out passable bird study skins in less than a week's instruction, but could they produce a museum-quality crimson-winged parrot mount? No way. There is so much more to know and so much more experience needed before even a reasonable mounted animal can be produced. Museum taxidermy is different to commercial or trophy taxidermy. Rather than mounting an animal to a cost point or to show off its size, antlers, horns or tusks, museums want mounts that tell some facet of the story of the subject animal, how it perches, runs, sleeps or flies, its feeding behaviour or prey items, its camouflage patterns or its breeding behaviour, each animal is preserved in a vignette of some part of its life. This then imparts knowledge to those that view it. It is a teaching moment in and of itself. The other thing that makes museum taxidermy so different and rewarding is that you're able to work with protected species. These can range from whales to finches, pig-nosed turtles to paddy melons, and everything in between. I never knew what type of animal would be next on the list for preservation at my museum. One of the most interesting animals I ever got to work with was a marsupial mole. I've never seen a live one or even a freshly dead one, and this specimen was neither. It had been frozen and thawed numerous times in the freezer compartment of a bar fridge for 14 years before I received it. It was partially rotten and partially freezer burnt, dried out. But this was a one-off opportunity. We had never received a specimen before. It took me two days to skin out something this big and I was very careful and tried to rehydrate the skin where it was freezer burnt. I then very, very carefully stuffed it with cotton wool because that was all we could use because the skin was so fragile and then sewed it up, keeping the full skeleton also as part of our collection. 
That specimen's now been on display for 20 years, and uh, it's one of the, the ones I'm actually very proud of. If you ever get a chance to touch a marsupial mole, either dead or alive, they have the most amazing fur. It's fur that has no other animal has, and it's, it's softer than soft. You, I can't explain it, but um, something that lives underground in red sand has the most amazing fur ever. As part of the science side of taxidermy, you need to get to know your subject from the inside out, literally. You must learn all you can about its anatomy so that the most lifelike body form can be produced for mounting the skin on. But you must also become familiar with every aspect of its behaviour and use huge amounts of reference material to do this, as well as observations from life. This is so that you can mount the animal in the most accurate lifelike pose possible. As museum taxidermists, we pride ourselves on getting it right. And if it is not right, it doesn't go on display. Let me give you two examples of what I mean. We had a fledgling pied butcher bird come in from a vet. It was a cat kill, and I decided to preserve it in a begging pose standing on the ground. I couldn't find any imagery of begging baby butcher birds, but was absolutely certain that when they begged, they drooped their wings vertically. I had seen them do it, I thought. So I posed the specimen this way. It turned out well, and I was very happy with it until some months later when I observed a family of pied butcher birds on my block at Humpty Doo. Well, those babies didn't droop their wings when begging. They spread them horizontally. I was a bit miffed. Maybe it was only this family with their weird babies. But no, I was wrong. They just don't droop their wings. And that specimen sits on a shelf in the lab as a reminder of carrying out careful research, due diligence, and getting things right. The second example is that of an alligator skeleton I was tasked with articulating. This is for an exhibit called Supercroc that we were working on that displayed all aspects of the evolution of crocodiles and alligators. This is for the 200th anniversary of the birth of Charles Darwin and the 150th anniversary of the publishing of The Origin of Species. I received a box of disarticulated bleached bones that had once been a two metre long American alligator. The plan was to articulate the skeleton in a high walk pose as they and crocodiles do when moving overland. I sorted out all the vertebrae into their correct sequence, used x-rays of alligator feet to articulate the wrists, ankles and toes, and basically over a month or two, completed all the work so I had an articulated vertebral column with a rib cage and tail and four articulated legs. But do you think I could get the vertebral column and legs to come together into a cohesive unit? There was a high walking alligator skeleton? No way, it would not work. It just, was something that no matter what I did, it would not come together. I finally worked out that my assumption, and there's that word again, that fresh and saltwater crocodiles exhibit the same high walk that alligators do must be wrong, as I had been taking measurements from a plethora of images of our local crocs to work on the alligator, as I couldn't find any images of alligators high walking. I then got onto YouTube, this is very early YouTube, and watched some videos of alligators high walking down roads in Florida, and could see the problem straight away. I had to raise the body, the vertebral column, as alligators walk higher than our local crocodiles. Who would have known? I raised it 100 millimetres, four inches, and everything just fell into place. You must use the correct reference material or else you have problems. So where does the art of taxidermy come into the equation? To mount your skinned parrot specimen, you must carve out a body from high-density foam or balsa to the exact specs of the actual body of the animal. Then you use wire, cotton wool, bog, modelling clay, pins, wood, needles and thread and glass eyes to mount this skin and make it into the lifelike mount you envision in your mind. It is something like sculpting but using a biological material base with all the other components just mentioned on the inside to give the mount structure and rigidity 
and in the end, life. This addition of life is the hardest, most difficult part of preserving an animal using taxidermy, mainly because it is dead, okay? It isn't alive, and you have no actual life to give it. But if you don't add life, the specimen will always be a stuffed animal, not that animal frozen in time that you are after. There are two factors that work in unison that add life to a mount, the eyes and the touch. As we know, eyes are the windows to the soul. If the eyes are not quite right, the mount will never be lifelike. Custom-made glass eyes have been produced for well over a century for the taxidermy industry, as this is what makes a mount. You can have a crummy, tatty mounted animal, but if the eyes are correctly set, it will still look alive. On the other hand, you can have the most perfect, most accurate mounted animal possible, but if the eyes are not perfect, it will never have life. Getting the eyes right is a must. And lastly, the touch. The knowing just what something needs or just what it doesn't to make it just so. An artist's touch, if you please. Over my two decades in the industry, I could turn out good work and even great work sometimes, but I never had the touch. You either have it or you don't, and the greatest artists and the greatest taxidermists both have it. It is innate and can't be forced or practised into being. My father had the touch, and I was always in awe of it. With a few deft tucks, twists or preens, he could turn a mediocre mound into a living creature, almost. So when you're next in a museum exhibit, with that perfect mounted magpie goose staring back at you, take some time to appreciate the knowledge and talent and the melding of art and science that has gone into producing that almost live creation. That was Jared Archibald, Curator of History at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory, speaking at our Occam's Razor live event at Darwin Railway Club on Larrakia land in July. I'm Tegan Taylor, your Occam's Razor host, and I'll have your next instalment of an Aussie scientist on display here next week. Wait, that sounded like I was going to kill and stuff them. I promise the scientist is okay. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.